All right. Uh, just the only announcement that I had tonight is that uh, the teen webinar the Camperete is having has been going on all week. Has one more day tomorrow, two o'clock and four o'clock. Pastor Brad Maston, who's a pastor of I think it's Fort Collins Bible Church. Anyway, it's in Fort Collins, and he's speaking on the rapture and in this at four o'clock on end times. So that will be uh, that will be tomorrow. Cast your burden on the Lord, and He will sustain you. He will never suffer the righteous to be moved. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. In God I will put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? These are promises we need to be reading, claiming, rehearsing uh, over and over again in these chaotic days. Before we begin, we need to make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord. I hope that uh, that's an exercise that all of you are exercising numerous times during the day because as we look around us, especially if you're a news junkie and you spend a lot of time watching even the headlines, and I hear this from more and more people, they don't even want to look at the headlines anymore, then it can be really discouraging. And we shouldn't be discouraged as believers. Uh, discouragement probably comes because we have an innate belief that is a false assumption. And that is the assumption that our future should be like our past and that we should not have to face all the things that are unsettling and we should not have to face our country falling apart. And maybe it's a good idea to read Jeremiah or Isaiah a little bit and understand that God hasn't promised us a future that is going to be rosy. Uh, we have lived in, as I've said many times over the course of my ministry, we have lived the last 250 years in a historical bubble of prosperity that is based on, uh, on our, our founding fathers and the founding generations and what they believed. And that gas tank is running on fumes now because there are very few left who really believe in the values of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, and beyond that, the values of Scripture. And that's why I'm teaching this series on how should we then vote. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so you can make sure that you are in right relationship with the Lord. Confess in silent prayer any sins that you're aware of so that you can be restored to fellowship if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. <clears throat> oh, Father, we're so thankful for all that you've provided for us, all that you've given us. We're thankful for the heritage we have of of the biblical foundation in our nation for the our forefathers who understood your word, who had thought through the great issues of life in terms of the Bible and were implementing a form of government that would honor and respect those exact institutions that you laid out in Scripture. Just your creation design as it 
um, as it applies to the human race in terms of our uh, social relationships, social organizations in terms of marriage and family, in terms of government and nations, and how we could be successful in each of those endeavors. And Father, we pray that as we study, you'll open our eyes to the importance of all of these truths and to where we need to improve in our own lives and our own thinking and how we can see, uh, use these principles to evaluate candidates and especially party platforms so that we can vote in a way that is most consistent with you because we know that there's no perfect party, there's no perfect candidate, and so we just have to pick the one that is closest to the Scripture that will honor and respect the freedoms that are embedded in our Constitution and Bill of Rights. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we've been going through the Divine Institution the last two or a couple of weeks, and so this would be the third part on Divine Institution number one, and the next time we'll get into Divine Institution number two, which is marriage, and Divine Institution number three. The uh, most important ones are going to end up being the first one, human responsibility, and the fourth one, which is which is government, and the fifth one, to some extent, nationalism. And the reason that we spend so much time on the first one is because all subsequent divine institutions depend upon human responsibility. And if we fail in that area, if we fail to understand the Bible emphasizes individuals and individual responsibilities and the respect by government for the individual, for the rights that God has uh, given to each of us, if we fail to honor that, and if individuals fail to be responsible as husbands and wives in marriage, as parents in families, as those who are selecting, electing leaders to lead them in terms of government and in terms of all of the various operations of a nation, and in terms uh, and holding people accountable for the support of the Jewish people in a time of rising anti-Semitism. If there's failure in these areas because the individual fails, then the whole edifice collapses. So we're continuing to talk about personal individual responsibility, and I just want to remind you of our framework for the worldview. This is so important today. It starts off with everything starts off with ultimate reality. Now, I'm going to not give you a test, but I'm going to give you a little preview of coming attractions tonight. We're going to have... A, a current event, a real-time event that's been in a number of news notifications since last night. In fact, when I first saw it last night, I sent it out to all the deacons and all the board members of, um, of uh, Dean Bible Ministries and a number of other people. And today there were more articles that were written about this particular event. And it was something, one of the first things that Rush Limbaugh mentioned at the uh, opening monologue of his first hour today. So I'll take time to look at that, but that's why I'm going to review a little bit because when we get to this, you're going to see why this is so important and why I have been spending so much time on this in a real-time event that is at the heart of our government, really. Okay, so we start with ultimate reality. 
Ultimate reality is God. Actually, the way worldviews break down, you have three options. You have one God, you have many gods, or you have no God, and all you have is matter. All you have is energy. Those are your basic three options. And basically, the middle one, polytheism, doesn't work because in all evidences of polytheism throughout history, all you have is people creating gods literally in their own image, just the opposite of what the Bible says. You have people creating gods in their own image, and they reflect all the flaws, all the sins, all the failures, all the different uh, wars and everything else that you see in, in human history. They are just a projection of fallen man into something that's a little bit bigger. So you have a personal infinite God on the one hand, and you have no God on the other hand. If there is no God, there is no meaning. There is no purpose. Everything is an accident. There are, there's no way to identify uh, values. Values are really devolved into power, which is what uh, Friedrich Nietzsche said. I'm not going through all the different worldviews, but that's a worldview called nihilism. And that was Nietzsche's view, was all of this talk that you hear, and I would say all this talk you hear from leftists, okay? All you hear from leftists, those who are atheists, those who are secular, are practice. You know, there are a lot of Christians who are living as if there's no God, okay? So they're what I call practical atheists. And they say a lot of good things. They say a lot of nice things. They say things that sound wonderful that... And politicians that make promises that sound good, but as Nietzsche said, quit, quit talking about all those things because they'll never happen. The bottom line is power. And you'll hear a lot of people talk about love, but they're not loving anybody. When you watch what they do, it's all about power, and that is exactly where we are. So this is so important, talking about ultimate reality. Second, knowledge. We're going to see some interesting things about that when we come to the last part tonight. And then ethics, how do we determine what is right, what is wrong? Who determines that? Are these eternal absolutes that are true for everybody, no matter what color no, their skin is, no matter what culture they come from, no matter what country they come from? It's all the same. These are uh, eternal principles, and they're absolutes that apply to everybody. And at the top, we have the issues, the issues that are on the news every night, the issues that are constantly repeated and talked about in every election cycle. But those all ultimately relate to metaphysics. They ultimately relate to ultimate reality. But I want to start us off understanding some of the warnings of Scripture. Isaiah chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. We see this before our very eyes today, and that is so we see a, polar, a polarity reversal. We see people calling good evil and evil good, and that is always a sign of an idolatrous culture. And even though we may not be making idols out of brass or out of wood or out of gold and silver, we are making idols out of intellectual concepts and intellectual ideas. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. These are the ones who have no external 
value system. That, and by that I mean a, a value system that comes from outside of the creation. These are those who ultimately just have a relativistic value system based on what they want, based upon power, based upon greed. And you saw this in Israel even in the time preceding the uh, uh, first time that the northern kingdom was defeated by the Assyrians and the southern kingdom by the Babylonians. We have to remember what David said as he went to fight Goliath. We look out and we can, and I've talked to so many people about this recently, and I want to make sure that, that as we touch on things and we just say, oh, I can't believe this is going on today. I can't believe that my children, my grandchildren are going to have to face that. And if you focus on that, then it's easy to feel overwhelmed and discouraged and defeated. It looks like there's no hope at times. And I succumb to that, you succumb to that, we all do that. But we have to remember, David, who's a scrawny little shepherd boy, uh, if, if he was the standard average size of a Jew at that time, and we know the size by doing skeletal, the skeletons that have been recovered by archaeologists, you can measure the average height of the men and the women. He was about 5'6 to 5'8". And Goliath was probably close to eight feet, seven and a half feet, something like that. And he's a trained warrior. He's defeated everybody. He's got armor. He's got a huge sword. It looks like that young shepherd man who's short and untrained is, doesn't stand a chance. And, but he recognizes that God's in control. And that's what we have to remind ourselves of sometimes a hundred times a day. God's in control, and I get to watch what he's doing. Isn't that great? We have a ringside seat. If, as many of us think that we're close to the rapture, we're close to the end times, that a lot of things we're seeing seem to be, as people think, a setup. We can't be far from the tribulation. Then if that's true, I don't know if it is or not, if that's true, then we have a ringside seat to watch the setup. We ought to be excited about that because God's in control. And this is just something to focus on because the battle is the Lord's. He is overseeing as the commander-in-chief the great angelic conflict that is being worked out in many ways right before our eyes, even if we don't understand it all. So we can relax. When it comes to our personal responsibility, though, we have to do what we can do to affirm and strengthen the foundations of this country. And only the Bible teaches us what those foundations are. And as I pointed out every week in this series, Psalm 11.3 says that if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The answer to that question is the righteous can trust in God. The righteous are going to be provided for by God. God is going to take care of us. As I, as I quoted from Psalm 55.22 at the beginning of class, uh, scripture says, cast your burden on the Lord. That is our burden. We are living in unsettled times, chaotic times. We don't agree with a lot of things that are going on possibly and are the decisions that are being made, but we have nothing to do about it. We are to cast our cares upon the Lord. This is what uh, Peter says in First Peter 5, 7, and the Lord will take care of us. He cast our cares upon him because he cares for us. And in Psalm 55, 22, it says, Cast your burden on the Lord, and he shall sustain you. He shall now never allow the righteous to be shaken. 
What does that mean? Because some people say, oh, nothing bad's going to happen to me. That's not what it says. What that means is that your faith will not be ineffective. Your faith is not going to be turned upside down. You're not going to go into the battle and say, well, God's not going to take care of me. Even if we lose our life, remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? And they are standing before Nebuchadnezzar, the king of kings in Babylon. He's the ruler of the empire. He's built this gold statue and commanded that everybody needs to bow down when the orchestra played. And if they don't bow down and worship him, then they're going to be thrown into this fiery furnace. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego just stood there and said, well, king, and it's, they're nice and polite. They're not angry. They're not upset. They're not defensive. They said, our God can protect us. And our God will uh, enable us to survive. But if he doesn't, we're still going to obey him. Now, that's the test of faith. Sometimes you go into the fire and you don't come out because God's going to take you home. Some, some have gone into the lion's den, and they weren't like Daniel. God did not miraculously rescue the, the many hundreds of Christian martyrs that were put into the Colosseum with the wild lions and the other wild animals and were torn to pieces because of their trust in Christ. So we trust God no matter what, and, that's, and our faith will not fall apart. That's what that last line means. Our faith will not prove to be false. Our doctrine is true, and we can trust, trust in it. So we're looking at these divine institutions. I've added a little bit here. These are absolute social structures instituted by God for the entire human race, applies to believers and unbelievers. So if you honor these as an unbeliever, then you are going to have a measure of success. And if you don't, then it's not going to work. If you're a believer and you read your Bible every day and pray every day, if you're a believer and you claim promises every day but you don't honor these, and there are a lot of believers like that. They go to church and they sing praise choruses and they have a wonderful experience with Jesus every Sunday. But there's no teaching, there's no doctrine, and they're learning social justice principles. It may shock you to know that the greatest problem facing the Southern Baptist Convention today is the dominance of social justice warriors. Here's the, one of the, it is probably the last remaining large denomination in history that has fought a good fight for the last 40 years over the uh, absolute authority of Scripture. And yet over the last 20 years, the liberals have regathered and they are fighting to gain control of the denomination, and they're, they're winning. And social justice is a big problem. Socialism is a big problem. Uh, they have women, one of whom is from Houston, who's very vocal that women should be ordained and, and lots of other things. So there's a complete role reversal going on, gender confusion. And it's a real fight. And uh, if you read some statistics, they'll tell you that the Southern Baptist Convention is getting smaller. It's not getting smaller due to a lack of attendance in those churches. It's getting smaller because the con a lot of conservative churches are leaving every year because they don't want to put up with the drift to the left. So you have believers who, can, who don't honor these things. And if they don't, they're going to be problems. They're going to be problems. So these 
social structures, social laws, if you will, are designed by God for the perpetuation, the stability, the protection, and the freedom of the human race so that we can have a measure of stability and joy and happiness and blessing in a fallen world. It's not, I've added this, it is not a social construct. We'll talk about that as we go forward. A social construct is the modern way of saying that man basically invents all of these things just to make life work. So we have the divine institutions, the first three before the fall, individual responsibility. We're all responsible to God for every decision we make in life. Marriage, we are to be monogamous and faithful to our spouses, and that is the framework for family and family is where we are to rear children and to train them and prepare them to go forward in the next generation. Those were all uh, initiated before the fall. Government is the fourth divine institution immediately after the flood. Nations after the Tower of Babel. And then Israel also after the Tower of Babel with the call of Abraham. So just a quick reminder, in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, we have the original creation of man. This is so important because it tells us that every single human being has value, significance, meaning, and purpose because we're created in the image and likeness of God. It doesn't have to do with what country we're from. It doesn't matter what ethnicity. It doesn't matter the color of our skin. What, it, what matters is that we are, every human being is in the image and likeness of God, and God gave them a mission. We pointed out there are five different commands here for the human race. And even though we're living in a fallen world, these are still valid. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You see, what what is going on here is an understanding that every human being has a place and a purpose and a destiny that is set by God and that he is to go forth and have dominion over the, over the world. He is to uh, make the world better in the sense of developing the resources, learning about the resources, learning about oil, learning about various minerals, learning about various uh, other components in the earth's crust that can be refined and used for many different purposes. Uh, some of uh, the plants can be used for uh, medicinal purposes. God has created all of that, and it's man's responsibility to go out, learn, and develop all of these different things to build a civilization on the planet that honors and glorifies, glorifies God. We see in this first chapter of Genesis that mankind is the creation of God to reflect him. Therefore, he has meaning, value, and purpose. This is why it is a capital crime, according to the covenant with Noah, if someone murders another person because they've murdered someone who has value because he's in the image and likeness of God. One of the worldviews that is a polar opposite to that of biblical Christianity is Marxism. And this was set forth by a man who was an atheist. So if you think about the worldview, he rejects 
the fact that there's an ultimate reality that's God. For him, ultimate reality was matter. Um, he uh, rejects uh, a knowledge of eternal things. He held to um, he held to ethics that were determined by basically basically power, and man comes up with them on his own because man it created himself. And so we have Karl Marx who said, uh, being only considers himself independent when he stands on his own feet. And he only stands on his feet when he owes his existence to himself. So what he is saying is that man owes his existence to himself and only man will take care of man. He is the originator of ideas that, that relate to the organization of society that completely go against all of the divine institutions. He doesn't treat the human race as individuals, but as classes. Uh, you have classes, you have the working class, and you have the, uh, the class of the employers, the class of the rich and the wealthy, and his whole system is built on creating conflicts between these two groups, which he identified as, as classes. And that those who are the ones who have capital have privilege. Okay, that's an important word that we're going to look at tonight. They have privilege, not because of anything they've done, because they are abusing uh, the working class. And today, he, we still talk about class. We have uh, politicians who seek to exacerbate class warfare and use that for their political power. And there's also a philosophical ideas that are coming up, and you'll hear people talk about identity politics. And in identity politics, what that does is it classifies everybody according to their gender or according to their ethnicity. And so we've heard this most of our lives where they talk about the black vote, they talk about the women's vote, uh, they talk rarely about uh, how men will vote, uh, and they talk about these different classes. As And all of this is based on overgeneralizations about groups that everybody, every woman ought to vote this way. They're a class. Oh, they're women who vote another way. Well, well, they're just not part of the group and there's something wrong and evil and, and twisted about them. And, and so you, ha and this is ingrained in some groups. And so you have some groups who have uh, some in their group that are uh, voting in another, the majority of them, for example, in the black community, you have, for in the last election, 88% voted for, um, uh, voted for Hillary Clinton, and that's how blacks should vote. And um, and you heard uh, presidential candidate Joe Biden said, "Well, you're not really black if you did don't vote for me." See, this is identity politics. You're part of a group, so if you have a certain skin color, that's how you ought to think. This completely denies personal responsibility, individual responsibility. God created us as individuals. He didn't create us as classes. He didn't create us in these identity groups at all. So from the very beginning, with our first divine institution, we see that this violates uh, the whole tenets of Marxism, and Marx, Marxism is just socialism taken to its logical conclusion. 
and um, and we're talking. We can t- we'll talk some about Marxism as we go along later on, probably on Tuesday nights. You have economic Marxism, which is how Marx set it forth, and then later there's the, the development of something called cultural Marxism, which may, as I'm thinking about these things, which may relate to a uh, the best way to describe the worldview. We have a lot of different phrases that come along today that that we're we may not be real familiar with. You have phrases like uh, critical race theory. You have social justice. You have identity politics. We have cultural Marxism. There may be two or three other things that are part of this matrix of a new worldview that is really an outgrowth of postmodernism, and it's all based on, ultimately on a rejection of God, a rejection of moral absolutes, a rejection that God has spoken or God has created, all of that is that the Bible teaches is uh, completely, uh, completely rejected in this worldview. And so those who have bought into this worldview are developing more and more of a hostile attitude towards, uh, towards Christians. And so if we're not careful, we're going to see a lot of people who aren't, a lot of Christians who aren't grounded in the word and have never heard anything like what I've been teaching for the last several weeks, and they are being swayed by this because it sounds good, because we have poor people, we need to take care of them. The Bible says so. Well, the Bible says that as individually we have a responsibility to help those who are less fortunate, but it never gives that authority to the government. It's always when you go into the passages that are quoted in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel that are, um, uh, that are indicting the people for failure to take care of the poor and the orphans and the widows. There were stipulations according to the Mosaic Law. Remember, the Jews were the first people to really be a people of the law, uh, where the law was the foundation of, of their culture. It wasn't embodied in like the divine man uh, ruler of uh, the Pharaoh of Egypt or the kings of Mesopotamia in that area where they became sort of sons of God. What you have in Israel is th- they are a people of the law. And uh, when you get into uh, looking at at these, these various uh, indictments in the prophets, what you'll discover is that they are indictments of the people as individuals, as individual Jews, they, they are ignoring the plight of the poor. They are ignoring. It's not talking about the government's not doing anything. It's always, these things always went back to personal responsibility because when you get away from the Lord, you don't care about other people. They become, uh, they become meaningless. So this is what we have is, is this opposite view of Marxism that is becoming more and more uh, pronounced today. And so we really need to think about the implications of these kinds of statements because what it does is to deny the significance of the individual. So people who are going out and asserting their individual rights are buying into a worldview that's going to destroy their individual rights. It makes them part of a, of a group makes them part of an identity group, uh, identity politics. And so in seeking to assert their individuality, they are destroying their individuality 
by rejecting God, and they destroy any basis for having value and meaning as, as, as a person. In the Declaration of Independence, let's think about this a minute. I've talked about this before as we've gone through the worldview. The writers, remember, this wasn't necessarily written by Thomas Jefferson. We know what he wrote, and he wrote some of this, but there was a committee that was involved, and they didn't take, they, they rewrote and edited what Jefferson developed. So you'll hear a lot of people say, well, Jefferson wrote this. Well, that's not true. He wrote a lot of it. It was the, the main draft, but everybody else uh, on the committee also uh, was, was involved with it. And it starts off, we hold these, what? Truths. Now, that's a word today that is not accepted as valid. In postmodernism, there is no truth. The Constitution begins, or the Declaration begins with the assumption that there are eternal, absolute truths. Eternal truths that apply to anybody and everybody because they're human beings. And that the second thing it says, that these truths are self-evident. This is a concept that is embedded in philosophical language that goes back to the very early Middle Ages. And remember, all of the philosophers in the Middle Ages going back to, to the uh, ancient church were theologians who, many of them, you go back to what's called the apostolic fathers or the church fathers that are the, the, the generations, the two or three generations that immediately followed the apostles, uh, some of whom were, uh, were discipled or led to the Lord by John the Apostle for one. You have Papias, he was led to the Lord by John the Apostle. And, and you go back, and some of them were trained in Athens, in Greece, in Greek philosophy, and now they're trying to answer the great questions philosophers have tried to answer and do it from the Bible and show why the Bible has a better answer. That We call that today apologetics. So the next group that comes along in church history about the middle of the second century is a group that church historians usually refer to as the apologists because they are setting up a defense of, of, biblical, of biblical truth. And they ha- there's this phrase that's used that in the Latin it's per se notum. It means knowledge that is self-evident, that once you understand what a statement means, its truth is obvious. It doesn't need further explanation. It doesn't need... Uh, to have a, uh, a, a, any kind of development of logic to demonstrate it, it is self-evident. It's obvious once you understand what the terms in the proposition mean. And the first truth that is self-evident is that all men are created equal. What they meant by that is not equality of results, that you look at the end of their life and they all have the same luxuries, they all have the same prosperity, and they all live good lives. It's talking about in the beginning. All are created equal with equal opportunity. And also this must be understood as a legal document that all men legally should be treated the same. 
There should not be a favoritism that one class gets favored over another class or one race gets favored over another race. Now, a lot of people say, well, these guys, some of these guys were slaveholders. Only some of them still held slaves. They had a huge fight when it came to the Constitution about slavery, and they realized they weren't going to be able to solve it. But they created a legal document which would make it possible to solve it. That would, And when these documents were written, because this is a big issue today, we hear about reparations and all of these other things, and some people say, well, all those guys were slaveholders. We hear this about uh, uh, Mount Rushmore and two of the presidents up there were slaveholders. Well, you always have to interpret history in the time in which it was written. And at that time, the slave trade was still legal. At that time, slavery was still legal in England, in Europe. It was still practiced. It was practiced at that time in every state, every colony. When I was at Preston City Bible Church, that building was built about 1813 uh, or 1814. We just had the 200th anniversary a few years ago. You remember it's where I got the Machira sword that's in front of the pulpit. And it wasn't until 1826 that slavery was abolished in Connecticut. Then they became real self-righteous, and you know it's like somebody quit smoking. You know, I quit smoking, so now you have to quit smoking. Everybody has to quit smoking. Let's declare cigarettes illegal. Self-righteousness, and that's what happened in the North. We've talked about that before, but uh, what happened here was was they didn't abolish it till then. So when that church was built. You go up into the balconies, you go back to the back, and there are these little narrow slats. And for a nickel, your slave could sit up there during church. Slave benches. This is a dark spot on our history, but we moved past it. We tried to resolve it. It led to one of the worst events in our history, which is the war between the states. And there were a lot of problems. There's no such thing as a 100% as, as a just war or a 100% perfect uh, leader or politician because we're all sinners. And so because of sin, they continued a practice that was immoral and was wrong and was unjust. But up until that time in history, the late 1700s, everybody did it. That doesn't justify it. That was the culture they were pulling themselves out of. And it was, as I've talked before, it was William Wilberforce and John Newton and Granville Sharp and others in their group of evangelicals in England that started working to abolish the slave trade and then to abolish slavery. And that the abolition of slave trade didn't occur until about 1815 or 1816. And the abolition of slavery didn't occur until 1836, just before Wilberforce died in England. It took longer here. It took longer in other places. And today we still have horrible slavery. It's the sex trade, the sex slavery, child, uh, child slavery. And, and it happens and much of it happens coming out of uh, Muslim forces in Africa still. Uh, the Arabs were a vital part of the slave trade in the 16th, 17th, 18th century coming out of Africa. It's absolutely horrible, but th this they had a principle, and it took them time to work it out. How many times have we in our personal life believed that there is something that we do that is a sin? It's wrong. 
We know it is. But the day after we're saved, the decade after we're saved, we still struggle with it. And finally, hopefully, by the grace of God, as we grow and mature, by the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, we're able to, to deal with it. And, and that's how growth takes place. And we have to deal with people in a measure of grace when it comes to any sin, because we're all equally sinners. So these truths are self-evident. All men are created equal. That's true even if the person who wrote it can't practice it. If we were to take every preacher in this country and say you can only teach about those things that you've been able to master in your life, there would be very, very few preachers and they would talk about very few things because we all have sin natures and we all fail. They're endowed by their creator. So the writers of the Declaration understood that these rights, these unalienable rights that are due to every single individual, it doesn't matter what they, uh, where they came from, it doesn't matter what color their skin, it doesn't matter their ethnicity, it doesn't matter their gender. Every individual has these rights and they came from a creator. They are not social constructs. So when we look out there and we see these various groups today that are talking about this, that are involved in identity politics, that, run, that, is, that is a treasonous idea. It is saying that we are who we are because we're in a social group. We're in a specific uh, ethnic group or gender group. We're classified, we are what we are because of that, not because we were created by God. Our founding documents recognize that we're created by God and our rights are grounded upon that. And so Christians who get involved with political parties and political groups that are, that are uh, validating these different organizations that are based on identity politics are setting themselves up as an enemy of God, an enemy of the Bible, and an enemy of the cross. Because we are endowed, every individual is endowed by the Creator with certain unalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's the Declaration. Recognizes the individual as important. That's divine institution number one. Our founding fathers and, and the generations that came to America from England and from Europe mostly, that when they came here, they, many of them had a good education, not like today. Uh, they, they were very well educated. They were learned, and they had a worldview that they had conscientiously thought through and they understood, and they brought that with them to America so that they could teach that to their, to their children. Now, last time I put this up, I didn't explain it a whole lot, but what we see in divine institution number one, because of what happens in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, is that there's three implications of personal responsibility. Number one is we're all accountable to God for spiritual and physical assets. Whatever we have, whatever we have when we come into this world, we're accountable to God how we use it, how we develop it. That's our responsibility. And the Scripture calls us to pursue greatness, really. 
If you're a believer, definitely, because the Bible says that we are to do all things to glorify God. So we are to live exceptional lives. Many Christians never have, never will, and don't understand that. But we're called to that. We're to be the best we can be walking by the Spirit, walking with the Lord. So we're held accountable. The middle column is labor. Not, it's not toil at the beginning, but they're given responsibilities, and they are to work in the garden, but they never sweat. There's no weeds. Every morning I get up, I have a vegetable garden. I go out to turn the sprinkler on to water it for the day, and I look over, and there's 20 new weeds that have come up since yesterday, and I have to go over there and pull those weeds out. And it, it, that's how life is. It's filled with weeds. We deal with all kinds of weeds, literal weeds and metaphorical weeds. But that's because of the curse. So we live in a corrupt and fallen world now, and we have to deal with a lot of things where there's suffering, where there's persecution, where there's prejudice. It's a fallen world. Every one of us is a victim of Adam's sin. So nobody can pull, play the victim card because we're all victims. We had parents who were sinners. We, had, we grew up with teachers who were sinners and pastors who were sinners. And everybody around us was a sinner. That's the corruption that comes from sin. But, but we have a responsibility to work and to labor and to own property. Now, founding fathers understood this. And these were part of the package of their political ideas. So here I've got a chart, and I've just got two columns here. And on the left is the biblical worldview, the Judeo-Christian worldview of the founding fathers, that human nature was depraved and unchangeable. Therefore, that idea had certain consequences in how they structured the Constitution and how they structured the government of the country. On the right column, we have the view of liberals, that human nature is basically good. Everybody's okay. Everybody's good. And I quoted from you a recent study from Barna that says that 60, what is it, 63% of Americans today believe that everybody's basically good. This is very dangerous. So human nature is basically good and perfectible. So what are, the, what, what are three consequences of those ideas? Well, the left column, the view that Americans had at the beginning of this country, as I've given you different examples of different things in, in the past from Donald Lutz's studies. Uh, Sidney Alstrom was the uh, head of the church history department at, uh, at Yale in his book, a, a Religious History of the American People. He, he stated that uh, 95%, I mean 75%, of Americans were grew up in churches with a reformed or Calvinistic type theology. Now there were Lutherans that came over, but on those a lot of those issues, Luther and Calvin were important. So when the Germans came over, they brought their Lutheran ideas with them, and they fit pretty well with the ideas of the of the Calvinists. And a lot of Baptists had those same, same ideas. So 75% of the people came from that. And also when we uh, look at that situation, we, we realize that a large number uh, came over from, from Ireland and Scotland, the Scots-Irish and the Irish, and they came over. And I'll give you some statistics here that in that time, 900,000 
were from Scotland or they were Scotch-Irish. That's where uh, my, some of my ancestors came that way. Others came from Germany later on. So if they were Scots or Scotch-Irish, what was their religious orientation? They were Scottish Reformed. They were Calvinist. They came from the heritage of John Knox, who was the Scottish Reformer. Yes, 600,000 were Puritan English. They, too, were influenced by, by Calvinism. 400,000 were German or Dutch Reformed. Dutch Reformed were also influenced by Calvin. Germans were influenced by, by Lutheran. Uh, 97% in the colonies were, uh, were Christian. Some of them were 3%, or two, well, almost 3% were Roman Catholic. And 2,000 were Jewish. Okay? What were their ideas? Their ideas came out of the Bible. So they, they, all of the founding fathers, they all thought this way. So we, we've studied that and gone through these details. So as a consequence of that and their understanding of personal responsibility, and because everybody is a corrupt sinner, that doesn't mean they're always going to do evil things, but they're, you can't always count on them to do the right thing because they'll be tempted by their sin nature. So we need to have strict laws and strict punishments. That means we have to have law enforcement officers. You can't solve the problem with social workers. You have to have police. You have to have those who will take care of the crimes and will make the environment such that people will be discouraged from committing crimes. On the other hand, those who are in the right column, this is typical of the mentality of the French Revolution. We'll talk about these things again when we get to this topic of revolution on Tuesday night. But one of the things that makes a difference between the American war for independence, why it's not a revolution, is because the like, like the French Revolution or the Bolshevik Revolution or the Cultural Revolution in China, is that those were undergirded by philosophical systems that believed in the goodness of man and that man could be improved. Whereas uh, not in America, they believe that we need to have a government and we need to have strict laws and punishments. But in the French Revolution, they believed in lax laws, a few punishments. And today we would say no need for police. Just, just let people do what they want to do. It, it trended a lot towards anarchy. Because in America, they believed that even the rulers... The, those who held elected office uh, were sinners, that their power needs to be guarded. There needs to be checks and balances. You had to limit the powers of the rulers, of the legislators, of the judges, and of the executive branch because they were inherently sinners and they could be tempted and corrupted, and so you had to have these, these checks and balances. But in the liberal view... Man is basically good, so you can trust your rulers. They'll, they'll do good. They have good intentions. They, they want to help the poor. They, all the things they say, they're, they're really going to help us. So you, you trust the ruler's good intentions. In another area, on the left side, founding fathers recognize that they're enemies to a nation. Biblically, you, uh, the, the government has two responsibilities, to protect the people from criminals within the nation and to protect them from enemies outside the nation. 
and that's pretty much it. So they recognized a need to have a, a militia, a people who were armed, uh, so that they could defend themselves against criminals. Somebody has said that if you want to know why people need to have an AR-15 with 30-round magazines, just watch the news. Just look at the riots. Just look at, at the things that are taking place, the people who are burning down uh, businesses and burning down houses and, and everything else. This is why you need to be able to defend yourself. Uh, the Second Amendment was not designed to protect, uh, was not designed to protect hunters so that they could go out at deer season and shoot a deer. It was designed to give people the ability to defend themselves at the time in which they are being attacked because it takes law enforcement a while to get there. So the people who believed in man was basically good, well, we don't really need to have a strong defense because we're okay, other nations are going to do good, everybody's basically good, so we don't need to worry about it. John Eidsmo, who spoke here at Chafer Conference a few years ago in a book called Christianity and the Constitution, the Faith of Our Founding Fathers, said the revolutionary principles of republican liberty and self-government taught and embodied in the system of Calvin were brought to America. The vital relation of Calvin and Calvinism to the founding of the free institutions of America, however strange in some ears this might sound, is recognized and affirmed by historians of all lands and creeds. So we have this that starts in the garden that uh, man is given the negative warning that if he eats from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then he will surely die. He does. He's separated from God, and he's internally corrupted by sin. He doesn't lose the image of God, but it is uh, severely corrupted uh, because of man having a sin nature. Passages like Isaiah 64, 6, all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. It's plural. Our many, many good deeds, they're filthy rags. He doesn't say all of our unrighteousnesses are as filthy rags. He says all of our righteousness. He includes himself, the great prophet of Israel. Paul, the apostle Paul in Romans 7, uh, the whole chapter, he talks about his struggle with sin. And in verse 7, he says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law said, You shall not covet. And then in verse 15, he says, For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I want to do, that is, to live a righteous life, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that is, unrighteousness, that I do. Throughout the Bible, there is not a complementary view of mankind, but we're held accountable for God's solution. John 3.36 says, Those of the right race who believe in the Son have everlasting life. Those who are in the right class have everlasting life. Those who are in the right group have everlasting life. It doesn't say that. It talks about individuals. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe, or literally, actually, it says he who does not obey, the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And then there's an ultimate accountability for believers. Second Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, 
whether good or bad, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are all known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences, the importance of the conscience and being able to live according to your conscience and without interference from the government. There are always restrictions, but you have to have that freedom. Founders understood that a society or culture was best that gave people. These are three key principles to take with you. Founders understood that a society or culture was best that gave people the greatest freedom to exercise their will, their responsibility, their volition, to develop themselves and take full responsibility for their lives. That's the first implication here. Second implication is that each individual is important in their own right and should not be coerced into conforming to their identity group. That if you're a woman, you should vote according to your conscience, according to your beliefs, and hopefully those are biblically-based beliefs, not according to what uh, the, the system out there says, this is how women should vote. This is how blacks should vote. This is how Hispanics should vote. This is how men should vote. You vote. Your vote is what you are accountable for, not your, not your group. And each individual is important in your own right. And third, though we are all influenced by our education, culture, family, and friends, we, as are, we are as individuals to think, there's a typo there, to think for ourselves, develop our own life plans, and to hold to a God-given code of conduct. We are answerable for our lives. Each person is responsible for how they live and what they do. Now, this last week, I got an email from, uh, actually it originated from Jonathan Clough, Charlie's son, who's a retired uh, Air Force colonel and sends out lots of really good, interesting emails. And this came from a, uh, a gal in college that uh, his, he was acquainted with. And, it, and all I have here is, is just the title of the book. This is a college university sociology textbook. It's called Race, Class, and Gender in the United States, an Integrated Study. Notice it's the seventh edition. Okay, that means it's been published a lot, printed a lot, and used a lot in college classrooms. This is what if you send your kid to school, it may not be this textbook, but this is what they've been teaching for the last 30 or 40 years. And a lot of these ideas were, were, were nascent form in the in the in the 70s and maybe even starting in the 60s because if you study the history of these ideas they do go back to the uh, seminal ideas that were in print going back to the 60s and 70s and I, I just want to read you the chapter titles from the table of contents because they'll give you an idea of what's going on here that that as, as far as the intellectual uh, elite in this country go race class and gender are all social constructs. They are not based in anything objective. It's not based on objective biology. It's not based on anything that is an absolute. It is based on how society defines you, how people. So it doesn't come from God. It comes from human beings. We've talked about the divine institutions. God 
is the one who designed that and put those in place within human beings in terms of our social engagement. So, let's just look at these. Racial formations is the first chapter. The second chapter, the ethics of living Jim Crow. Okay, I don't know what that's about, but look at the third one. Constructing race and creating white privilege. Whiteness is a social construct. It's, it has, it's created by, by history and by society. That is a Marxist idea. Marx has developed a lot of these are, are, are in seed form in Marx's writings. I've been enjoying reading Marx a little bit over the last week or two to cull some things, and so that's been a lot of fun. So enlightening, not like reading the Bible. Constructing race, creating white privilege. And then the fourth one, I'd like to read that one, how Jews became white folks. See, Jews are not descendants of Japheth. Jews are descendants of Shem. They are Semites. But when you think of race as a social construct, it doesn't have anything to do with DNA then it's just something that society invents and develops, okay? So along the way, all Jews became white folks. Fifth chapter is called um, Night to His Day, The Social Construction of Gender. So male and female isn't determined by your DNA. It's not determined by what you have or you don't have. It is determined by something between your ears. You determine your own gender. That's how they think. That's why we have all these issues with LGBTQ and gender politics and everything else is because you get to be uh, whatever gender you want to be. And you may want to be a male, you may want to be a female, or any number of 70 other genders. Then we have the social construction of sexuality in terms of whether you want to be a male or female, things of that nature. And I like the one, the invention of, home, of heterosexuality. I don't think he went to Genesis 2 for his starting point. So being heterosexual was an invention. Now think about the implications of that. If heterosexuality is an invention, then what was it before heterosexuality? You only have one other option. You have homosexuality. Well, if everybody is homosexual, how did you have any offspring? Oh, but yes, you have to remember that in postmodern thought, there's no such thing as logic. Logic is just so 19th century. Uh, deconstructing the upper class and domination supporting that, that gives you an idea. So here we have this situation that came up yesterday, came out in the news. Some, somebody wrote an article about this, and this is a, an, a, from an exhibit in the, uh, one of the Smithsonian museums. It is the National Museum of African American History and Culture. That's what the NMAAHC says. And so this is talking about white privilege, and it's titled Aspects and Assumptions of Whiteness and White Culture in the United States. So it starts off telling us that white dominant culture or whiteness 
refers to the ways white people and their traditions, attitudes, and ways of life have been normalized over, the to- over time and are now considered standard practices in the United States. And since white people still hold most of the institutional power in America, we have all internalized some aspects of white culture, including people of color. Now, remember what I said a minute ago, what that chapter was? Let's go back to it. This is why it's important. How Jews became white folks. Jews are not white. Jews are Middle Eastern. Jews are Semitic. Ah, But if you want to get rid of the Bible, you have to make them white so that you can get rid of them when you get rid of white people and you can accuse Christianity of being a white man's religion. So there, there is some logic to their confusion. So it talks about several things. Rugged individualism, what do they say? That, that's what we would talk about in terms of divine institution number one. See, this is the application and the insight part of our lesson tonight. Remember, your tax dollars paid for this and are still paying for this. So you might want to write your congressman. I'm sure that Dan Crenshaw would be responsive. Uh, The individual is the primary, this is rugged individualism. This is what's wrong with whiteness. The individual is the primary unit. Self-reliance, independence and autonomy are highly valued uh, and rewarded. Individuals assumed to be in control of their environment. You get what you deserve. That's whiteness, and that's evil, according to this view. So when you hear people saying there's white privilege, and they don't like white privilege, this is what they're rejecting. Second, family structure. They, are, uh, they reject the nuclear family, father, mother, two or three children in the ideal social unit, where the husband's the breadwinner and head of the household, Wife is the homemaker, subordinate to the husband. Children should have their own rooms and be independent. So they attack the family. They're against the, the, the biblical view of marriage, and they reject the nuclear family. This is a stated value on the What We Believe page of Black Lives Matter. They're buying into this whole thing uh, completely. Then they critique whiteness gave us the scientific method, which believes in objective, rational, linear thinking, cause and effect relationships, and quantitative emphasis. So that's all wrong. History, the view of history. So we've studied Judeo-Christianity, which teaches that God has a plan and a purpose. He created everything, and all history is really God's plan, and he is taking history to a resolution of the sin problem in the millennial kingdom and its ultimate resolution in the battle of Gog and Magog at the end of the millennial kingdom and then the great white throne judgment. History has meaning, purpose, and a destiny to resolve the sin problem. They say that uh, history is based on Northern Europe immigrants' experience in the United States. That's a heavy focus on the British Empire. That's not true. The primacy of Western, Greek, Roman, and Judeo-Christian tradition. So that's bad. There comes Judeo-Christianity. They are against it. White privilege is bad. Therefore, Judeo-Christianity is bad. (coughs) Then they attack the Protestant work ethic, part of divine institution number one. 
Hard work is the key to success. Work before you play. If you didn't meet your goals, you didn't work hard enough, so they are critical of the Protestant work ethic. Actually, it's not the Protestant work ethic. It is the Old Testament biblical work ethic. It was developed even in the Roman Catholic monasteries during the period preceding Protestantism. Uh, Religion, Christianity is the norm. Anything other than Judeo-Christian tradition is foreign. Uh, No tolerance for deviation from single God concept. I haven't noticed that intolerance in our country. Not Not in the last 75 years or more. People are free to practice whatever religion they want. But this is whiteness, and so it's got to go. That's what they say. Status, power, and authority, wealth is worth. That's not what the Judeo-Christian concept says. Your job is who you are. That's not what the Judeo-Christian worldview says. It's not what the Bible teaches. Respect authority. Yes, that is true. We are to respect authority. That's what the Bible says. Heavy value on ownership of goods, space, and property. And I hope there are some people listening to this Uh, tonight that may not be here, may not be part of our congregation, that may be some other people who just happen onto this. But this tells you that if you are a Christian and you say, you know, I I like some of these things, that's not biblical and you are not consistent with the biblical view uh, of life. And then you get to um, the next stage, which is we'll deal with... uh, Uh, future orientation. You plan for the future, learn to delay gratification. That's a sign of maturity. Instant gratification is a design of selfism, selfishness. Progress is always best, and tomorrow will be better. Well, that goes back to the Bible. So they're rejecting all the biblical values. Uh, Time, follow rigid time schedules. Time is viewed as a commodity. That's because time is money. They reject all of that. Aesthetics, that, that concepts of beauty are based on European culture. Uh, steak and potato bland is best. I, I don't know that I ever ran across that anywhere. Having grown up in a Texas culture where we value good Mexican food that, food that has to be spicy, that was, never was part of, part of our culture. Uh, women's beauty is based on blonde, thin, and Barbie. Well, there may be some people who've tried to promote that, but that is not... A, a, a historic concept. Uh, so this is just a, a complete overgeneralization and misrepresentation and, uh, and in fact, lies about uh, Western civilization. Western civilization before Christianity was no different from African civilization. It was no different from Indian civilization. It was no different from a, any Asian civilization. They were all polytheistic. The Romans were polytheistic, the Greeks were polytheistic, the, those who lived up in uh, the area we know as Scandinavia were polytheistic, the Celts were polytheistic, uh, all of these groups were all polytheistic, they had rejected God. What made a difference was that Jews who are not white, Jews came into Western Europe with the gospel of Jesus Christ to tell people who they were as creatures of God, that every individual had value, significance, and meaning, and that God loved us in such a way that he sent his son to die on the cross for us. That is what changed those pagan polytheistic tree worshipers in 
in England and in what we know of as France and Germany into Western civilization. And that gave us all of the luxuries and the technology that we have, that we enjoy every day, came as a result of that Judeo-Christian worldview for progress and for development. Computers were not developed by the Asians in a Hindu or Buddhist worldview. They learned to copy them. Once Once they were developed in Western civilization, they copied them and were able to duplicate them. And so many things are made in China, but they weren't invented in China. And even when China invented things like like paper and gunpowder, they didn't do anything with it. It never developed because they didn't have a worldview of progress and development and uh, the cultural mandate of Genesis 1, 26 to 28. So they didn't do anything with it. it once those things came into uh, the West, Western civilization with the mentality of Christianity, then they were uh, developed and they were, uh, they were used. So... Uh, and then they critique holidays based on Christian religions, based on white history, and and male leaders. They go on to talk about justice. It's based on English common law. Protect property and entitlements, and intent counts. It doesn't matter what you did so much as long as you meant to do the right thing. And so we're not. We're just going to pat you on the hand. See, that comes back to the idea that man is basically good. And so and then they have a lot of problems with competition, and I'm just going to go on from there. Uh, communication. Some of you here need to listen to this, that it is bad to follow the king's English rules. Grammar should not have rules. You should just talk however you want to talk. It doesn't matter whether anybody can understand you, just as long as you feel good about what you said. Written tradition. Avoid conflict and intimacy. Don't show emotion. Don't discuss personal life. Be polite. Now, some of that was true about Victorian England, but it's not necessarily true about uh, other European cultures and values. It's just a completely bogus thing. And so we have to deal with the consequences of sin. As the Bible says, the physical world is corrupted. Humans will be born spiritually dead. All living things will eventually die. There is undeserved suffering, in some cases horrible undeserved suffering, because we live in a corrupt fallen world. And we can't change those rules. So skipping over a few things, I just want to take us to a couple of passages that emphasize work. For example, Exodus 20, verses 8 through 10, is the commandment related to Sabbath. God says in verse 9, six days you shall labor. That's an imperative in the Hebrew. God didn't say, well, you know, you might not work. No, six days you will work, and then you rest on the seventh day. There's no concept of, of, of laziness acceptable in the Mosaic law. God designed man to work. Uh, Exodus 20, verse 15, you shall not steal. That recognizes property rights. This is reiterated in the New Testament. Paul says in Ephesians 4, 28, he who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share 
with the one who has need. Notice it's individual responsibility to take care of those who are in poverty, those who don't have. That is a responsibility of every individual and especially every believer. It is not to be mandated by government. We are to submit ourselves to every authority, First Peter 2.13 down through 17, ending with honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. So this takes us into what is really, we'll come back to this with the uh, fourth, uh, fourth divine institution, which is human government. In Galatians 6.6, 6, let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. It's up to the individual to make the decision how they will share and what they will share. It is not to be mandated by any higher authority. And when you look at what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians, he says that he didn't take of others uh, to, that he didn't depend upon others to provide for him. He worked with labor and toil day and night. And he goes on to say in verse 10, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. Now, that doesn't apply to widows. It didn't apply to children. It didn't apply to orphans. Uh, There are other stipulations. You have to understand everything within the Bible. What he's dealing with here is a problem with people who were just lazy and wanted other people to take care of them. And he says they don't have a right to eat. You have a right to life, but you don't have a right to eat. Okay? You have a right to work and to labor, and then you have a right to eat. And we are all held accountable. 1 Peter 4, 5, we'll give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So there's individual responsibility. That's the first divine institution. We'll come back next time and talk about marriage in Genesis. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things. Help us to be able to learn these things and and, and express them and talk to others about what the Bible says and that there is you created a world with order, meaning, and purpose, and you created mankind in your image with order, meaning, and purpose, and therefore we have value. What people yearn for is value, meaning, purpose, a reason to live, and searching after all these other things is is ironic because it doesn't provide meaning, value, or purpose. We only find that in you, our sole focus for our soul is eternal rest in you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.